80% of our lifespan is is in our hands, only 20% is genetic. That's such a positive message. That was Dr. David Sinclair. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, thanks for listening to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I am so excited to dial you in to today's guest, Dr. David Sinclair, globally renowned biologist and leading world authority on genetics and longevity. If you haven't already read his incredible, eye-opening New York Times best-selling book, Lifespan, you are definitely going to be ordering it after this conversation. His revolutionary theory and ideas on aging and why we don't have to, which he presents in his Information Theory of Aging and writes about in the book, is based upon his research and studies over the past 25 years. It is truly groundbreaking. This book is going to change your life, the way you think about aging and your overall approach to health and the future of your healthcare. It has for me, for sure. David and I caught up at Harvard Medical School where he is a professor of genetics and co-founding director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biological Mechanics of Aging. On today's episode, David and I talk about the inspiration behind his quest and path into science genetics, epigenetics, and longevity, the hallmarks of aging, reversing the aging process and turning back your biological clock, activating or reactivating your vitality genes and pathways, and easy to implement ways you can do this through intermittent fasting, exercise, cold exposure, and more. You will discover the science and emerging technology behind his information theory of aging, And you will come to understand things like boosting mitochondria, increasing NAD levels, and activating sirtuins. You will learn how to live healthier and stay younger, thanks to his roadmap for taking charge of your health and destiny. We also talk about his theory that aging is a disease, and by reversing its effects, you can possibly prevent such things as age-related diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, infertility, and more. One of the things I truly enjoyed and appreciate about David and Lifespan is that while he offers a deep dive into the science of aging, he also offers down-to-earth, easy-to-understand, relatable stories and examples on our biological mechanics. David Sinclair's bio is incredibly impressive, understandably so. He obtained his PhD in molecular genetics at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, in 1995. And the rest is history. He is the co-founder of several biotechnology companies and is on the board of many others. He is co-founder and co-chief editor of the journal Aging. He is an inventor on 35 patents and has received more than 25 awards and honors, including being one of Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in the world in 2014 and top 50 people in healthcare in 2018. 
I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your app, scroll through the episodes, click on write a review, click on five stars, and tell us what you love. Also, feel free to DM us on Instagram or message us on Facebook. And of course, you are welcome to email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about David Sinclair or purchase his book, you can go to lifespan.com or genetics.med.harvard.edu slash Sinclair slash people slash Sinclair.php. Got that? Okay, now on to the episode. You're one of the foremost experts on aging and genetics with a revolutionary new theory that is changing the way we age and what we can do about it. Tell me about your new book, Lifespan, and the inspiration behind the book and this groundbreaking concept where you've ultimately hacked the aging process. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, thank th- you so much for being here. I forgot to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- so Thank you so much for having me up at your office. Well, it's an honor having you up here. Thank you. Um, so we're now nine floors above uh, Longwood Medical Center. Uh, it's where a lot of the drugs of the world are developed. And so that's what we're working on, but we're working on a very particular type of medicine or medicines that instead of treating one disease at a time, uh, we think that we can actually prevent most major diseases, if not treat them, and maybe even reverse them. So we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, uh, yeah my, my idea about why we age, it's in the book, is a new idea, which is that aging is essentially a loss of information. Okay, We live in an information age. We know what happens if you lose an email. It's not good. And what we've been searching for is what is the information? How is it encoded? Where is it encoded? And can we recover a backup copy of that information to make us young again? And we have answers to all of that. Awesome. And so that's what you talk about when you talk about your the information theory of aging. And it has a lot to do with your epigenetics. Yeah, epigenetics is the key. So let's unpack that. In the 1950s, there was a lot of focus on genetics. They just discovered genes, they discovered DNA, and there was a lot of talk of radiation and its effects. And so there was a theory that mutations, loss of genetic information is what causes aging. Unfortunately, that that's hasn't really stood up to scrutiny over the last uh, 60 years or 70 now. A lot of reasons why I won't go into every one, but essentially you can make an animal that has lots of mutations and it still lives normal and healthy. So, and we've struggled to find a lot of mutations that are really driving aging. doesn't mean they're not not there, but what I'm proposing is that it's a different type of information that's important and that's lost over time and that that drives all of these diseases that we eventually get. Uh, We know if if we stay young, we're not going to get heart disease or Alzheimer's. And we take it for granted. But why is that? And I think we have an answer now. The key to the information theory of aging is realizing that there are two types of information in the body. The genetic, which as I've just said, is probably not the cause. The other type of information is what you said, Marnie, which is the epigenetic information. So what's that? That is the system in our cells that reads the genes correctly. So a nerve cell has the same genes as a skin cell, but why is it behaving differently? That's the epigenome. This is the packaging of the DNA molecule itself that allows a nerve cell just to read the nerve genes, skin cell to read the skin genes. But over time, what we're finding is cells lose that ability and nerve cells start to forget what type of cells they are and malfunction. And eventually they senesce, which means they turn all zombie-like. Mm-hmm. And sit you talk there. about zombie cells in your book. Yeah, zombie cells are bad. And we're trying 
as a field, we're trying to develop molecules that kill them off and get rid of them. But that's not a permanent solution because they'll come back again. So what we're trying to do is prevent cells from ever becoming senescent and reversing their biological age so that they act and actually literally are as young as they once were. Right. And so what are some of the hallmarks of aging? Yeah, so the hallmarks uh, came about about 10 years ago when a group of scientists, myself included, we think we're really clever and we wrote down a list of eight or nine hallmarks or causes of aging and published those in top journals and declared victory. Those are things like senescent cells and mitochondrial dysfunctions, loss of energy, stem cell loss, nutrient deregulation, goes on and on. Right. And But that doesn't mean we've solved why aging occurs. It's like saying, oh, we've seen birds fly. Doesn't mean we know how to fly yet. Right. And I was fascinated with studies we did in, at MIT in the 1990s that said that information was important. So we've been studying genes in my lab for the last 20-something years called sirtuins, and the sir in that name stands for silent information regulator. And essentially, they turn genes off when it's important, and they let genes come on when cells are in trouble and are likely to die. And uh, that information has been very important for the theory. And what I've proposed in the book, and we have a few papers coming out uh, over the next six months, is evidence that this theory has validity. So what is that idea? It's that the epigenome gets disrupted by major stresses, such as broken chromosomes, over our lifetime. And what has to happen when you break a chromosome is that the epigenome needs to unravel and the, the loops of DNA have to change their looping. But then you have to reset the system once you've fixed the broken DNA. And that repackaging of the genome doesn't happen perfectly. So over time, if you do that every day of your life, we're all experiencing a trillion breaks in our bodies a day of a chromosome in all these cells. What happens is the packaging doesn't go fully back. It's as if you've opened up a present and you can kind of get the packaging back and you can re-gift once or twice. But mm -hmm. try doing that a million times. Uh, it's not going to work very well. And that's what we think is going on in aging. We, we're talking about epigenetics. And we know now that based on, you know, all these theories in your book that our DNA is not our destiny. And it's true that we can slow down and reverse our genetic clocks and we can activate these sirtuins. What are the other genetic pathways? They are called AMP kinase. And that's very important for sensing the amount of energy in the body. Mm -hmm. So it'll get switched on when you're hungry. And it actually goes down as you get older. All of these pathways get dysfunctional as you get older. Uh, and then the third one is called TOR, or we might hear it called mTOR. And this is a group of proteins that sits in every cell waiting for influx of amino acids. So if you eat a giant steak, mTOR will get turned on and it'll build new muscle and help you grow new cells, which is great, except for the fact that when mTOR is not active, let's say you're hungry, you haven't eaten a steak in a while, it'll actually shut off. And that is good for us. It turns out if you downregulate or turn off mTOR or create a mouse that doesn't have active mTOR, it'll live a lot longer. And there's a drug called rapamycin, which has toxicity, so I'm not recommending anyone do that. Go take it. It suppresses the immune system, among other issues. But we know from feeding rapamycin to mice and to dogs, it has really remarkable anti-aging properties. And mice can live a lot longer, even when it's given to them late, late in life, the equivalent of 60, 70 years of human years. Is there anything that mimics rapamycin that someone could take that could help with this same activation? Mm -hmm. well, so right now, the cheapest and the most effective is to don't eat a lot of steak and try right. to eat less often in general. But is there a molecule you could pop a pill, say, and, and have that effect? They're in development. There's okay. one 
I know of that's heading into the late stage clinical trials. So in the next few years, it might get on the market if all proves safe. And that would be great. But overall, we probably, you talk about eating less protein and getting those pathways to be active. Right. Well, there's no one program fits all. And I talk about it yeah. in my book, why uh, pulsing the body is important. You know, you don't want to do anything too often or too long. And so, for example, with the, the meat story, there's always complexity to these stories. Right. There's no headline. And in yesterday, there was a study that just came out that said meat isn't so bad for you. Right. And I agree with that. But eating meat every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, bacon, eggs, uh, sausages, it's a lot of protein. And it's also more important when you eat than what you eat, it turns out. Okay. And that's not appreciated. We're all focused on, oh, should it be carbs or should it be fat? It should be uh, protein. Look, when you eat like time of day. Time of day is much more important. Now, again, these are mouse studies, but they're, they're pretty convincing in my view. And they fit with 2,000 years of human history as well, that if... So my friend Rafael de Cabo at NIH uh, down in Bethesda, he did an experiment that gave him a a very surprising result. He was trying to figure out why calorie restriction in monkeys gives different results on longevity. And he has a colony of macaque monkeys and someone who used to work with me, Ros Anderson, in Wisconsin had a group of monkeys and they were given less food than a typical monkey would eat if given you know, it, a chance to eat constantly. And one of the groups, they were all healthy, but one of the groups lived longer statistically and the other didn't. And he's trying to figure out why that was. And so he made up different diets that mimicked what the, the monkeys were given. With Some had a lot more carbohydrates, some had more protein, some had more fat. And he found that they all lived the same amount of time, almost exactly. But what was different was when they were given the food and for how long. And those mice that were given the food just for a few hours instead of all day mm-hmm. lived the longest. And that leads you to intermittent fasting. Yeah. I mean, it's a well-known thing, pretty well-known. I wouldn't call it a fad because I believe in it, but it's only been recent that the general public has learned about this. But we've been giving food intermittently to mice for a few decades now, and it's clear to us that that's very helpful to them. Not just their longevity, but their health into old age is dramatically different. And that's that's one of many of the pieces. So when you talk about intermittent fasting, though, do you, is it, four hours a day or are you doing it for 30 days or are there different types that you would recommend? Yeah. Uh, well, I go through various ones in, in my book. The, okay. one, the one that I find easiest, and that's the one that I do because I'm pretty lazy, uh, is I try to just skip one or two meals a day. I have a very tiny bit of yogurt for breakfast. It's mainly just to wash down some resveratrol, which is we can talk about later. That's Was that you having a glass of red wine in the morning? I'm having a thousand glasses of red wine for breakfast, actually, the equivalent of. Speaking of resveratrol, you're taking it in a powder supplement form, correct? Yeah. But it's very prevalent in red wine. Not right? very. No, Just it's a not. milligram or two. And oh. So I'm taking... So you need to drink at least a, a bottle. A teaspoonful. Okay. Uh, I'm not <laughs> <Just> condoning <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, you probably won't live longer if you do that. Uh, I still drink wine because it's full of other what I call xenohermetic molecules, which right. are molecules that plants make when they're stressed. And I've proposed that uh, with my friend Conrad Howitz that ingesting stressed plants is good for us too because it gives our body at least the appearance of uh, food supply running out. What are some other stressed plants? Well, so, yeah, so grapes are the best one because for a few reasons, and I'll get to the others. Grapes are, are a wine is fantastic, and we've discovered this by accident as humans. You want to stress them. And they are harvested when stressed, typically. Right. Either they're dry or the sun is hitting them or they've got a fungus on them. That boosts their xenohermetic molecules, but it also boosts their flavor and their color. 
they all go up. And so you want to look for other types of foods that have these colors. And uh, those types of foods are uh, anything that's colored. So blueberries, as mm-hmm. long as there's not too much sugar in them. Leafy vegetables that are colored. That means that in them are, are also other xenohermetic molecules. Polyphenols are a class of xenohermetic molecule. And polyphenols are things like quercetin and physetin and resveratrol. Right. So you also, so you can take it in a powder form. You can. can take it as a supplement, which you can get on Amazon or wherever. You can buy these things. Now, I want to say something that's important, yes. which is uh, start with a healthy lifestyle because these aren't just excuses to sit on the couch and yeah. pop pills. And we found that, at least in, in these studies in my lab, if you combine a healthy lifestyle and these supplements, you get the best bang for the buck. So right. that's that's the lesson here. But you can buy them. I'm not affiliated with any companies that right. sell anything. I need to be above the fray and just be scientific about it and objective. Right. Yeah, I mean, so in addition to intermittent fasting, you also talk about exercise as being super important in part of this movement of anti-aging. Why is exercise important? So exercise, we discovered years ago, probably 2002. We, again, we were studying little yeast cells, which is crazy to think uh, that it taught us so much. What we discovered was that hungry yeast cells and cells that you give low amino acids, and if you give them high temperature, they all work through these sirtuins to make the yeast cells live longer. And you can't exercise a yeast cell, of course, they don't have legs. But what it taught us was that being a little bit stressed, and I don't mean psychological stress, I mean biological. You know, you want to get your body out of the thermoneutral zone or or out of always being satisfied. Right. Um, Exercise is one of the ways to turn on these same pathways. So in fact, when you're fasting and when you're hot or cold or exercising, they're having very similar effects on the body through these longevity survival pathways that delay aging. So what about exercise? I do not enough. Um, I try to run uh, more than once a week. Usually mm-hmm. I'm pretty bad at it. I work till about midnight and after that I'm ready for bed. But on the weekends, I really devote a lot of time to exercise. And so I'm three hours in the gym with our son, Benjamin, and that's intense. There's a lot of aerobic exercise, so the high-intensity interval training I recommend. Uh, It's the best you want to be out of breath for at least 10 minutes. Half an hour would be good. That means you can't carry out a conversation. You're so heavily panting. And what that'll do is induce hypoxia in your body, which we've shown is really beneficial and turns on the sirtuin pathways that's in part important for maintaining your energy and your mitochondrial activity, the little battery packs in cells. So do that. Lift weights as well because you want to be able to have the muscle strength as well and you'll increase your metabolism so you can actually enjoy a little bit more food and not gain weight. Um, and as you get old, older, you want that muscle strength. Otherwise, you might trip on the carpet and break your hip like my grandmother did. Right. She never recovered. And then other interesting things that I do, there's a lot of stretching, which is important for old age, no question. So yoga, that kind of thing. Um, and also sauna and cold tubs. Get your body out of its comfort zone. That's all I'm saying. It's called hormesis. What doesn't kill you makes you live longer. Right. So that's real. Yeah, it's more than real. It's based on 30 years of research. Yeah. And now we understand why it works. That's what makes it really interesting. Yeah, because I feel like you could tell someone to exercise or you could tell someone that they should do the calorie restriction or be on a diet or, you know, I do all the hot, cold therapy. I do that just for, as an athlete. Do like you? I do Great. take an ice bath when I, I do. I, I try to, you know, I'm slowly working on the ice bath component of my training and all those things. But I do, it is hard. It is really hard. But honestly, it's the most amazing feeling. I know you do it. So it really does feel great. Yeah, invigorating, really. And I'm, I'm 
checking what happens to my body during this. I'm just a scientist trying to figure stuff out. So I've recently got a monitor on my arm that looks at my blood sugar levels, and I'm trying to figure out if these things like sauna and cold tub affect my blood glucose levels in the short run and long run. But if nothing else, I feel great afterwards, for sure. It really sharpens the mind when you've been at four degrees Celsius for 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I can only go in. I can go in for like not even that long. I mean, well, I'm not in going in that, in that temperature in that degree. I'm mm. going into an ice bath, so it's not that cold. But an actual ice bath. Yes. Oh. I wow. pour. I go. To, <laughs> I go to the deli. I get two bags of ice. I pour it in my bathtub, and I just sit in there as long as I possibly can. And I breathe, and I'm like screaming. It's the whole thing. But good for you. I do it because, yeah. and I feel a new person. It's like I didn't just run 20 miles. Well, it's not just theory. So I did a lot of research for my book, and hopefully, if people read it they'll they'll see that there's a lot of data on this and, and it's not just made up it's not right. just that you feel good for example being cold will activate what we call brown fat which we didn't know existed until 10 years ago and it's found in various pockets under your skin particularly across the back and we used to think this was only in babies to keep them warm but it's not it's in our bodies but you have to be cold to really get get it working but when you do you'll have a lot more energy your body will burn fat and we think it's really important for longevity too. The sirtuin genes that I work on, one of them, number three out of seven, uh, is totally active uh, when it's cold. And so I think that what you're doing is, again, turning on these longevity pathways by getting your body into a state of, of awakening and fighting back against disease and deterioration. In your book, I love how you talk about the sirtuins and the mTOR or the TOR and the AMPK, and how they kind of all work together, and your metaphor of comparing them to your sirtuins or the command center. And also you talk a lot about mitochondria and NAD, and as we get older, these are important things to start to think about, like our mitochondria by the time we're 50 or like at half the level they were when we were kids. And, you know, how do you increase that? And doing all these things like cold therapy and stressing the body, obviously, are part of mm-hmm. the solution. I, I think they are. We, we don't have 100% proof, right? We're still You're testing in the, it in in the Middle Ages yeah. in terms of uh, knowledge. And that's part of the reason I'm trying to accelerate human knowledge by being a guinea pig. We, I just want to know and tell people what we're seeing. But what's interesting about the, the cold, actually, is that we now live a life where we are very rarely cold. My wife, Sandra, if the thermostat goes down by a three degrees, she's upset. So we live a life of luxury. And in the previously, you know, just going back a couple of hundred years, maybe not even that, we would be cold. We'd be shivering at night. We'd be cold. And what uh, we've proposed, uh, my colleague Ray Cronus and I, that's uh, called the metabolic winter hypothesis, and that always being in what we call the thermoneutral zone, where in summer we, we have the air conditioning and in winter we have the heater on, it's not good for us. Our bodies are used to being chilly or uh, hot. And this is actually something we've lost with our modern day lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it's important to sleep with the air conditioning on at night and, you know, sleep right. with the room at a certain temperature. Yeah, throw off the blanket. Don't don't shiver. You're not going to sleep well. But there's no point in being all bundled up all night. It's a very good way to actually burn energy is to just have a sheet on at night, especially in the summer. Yeah. So tell me more about the mitochondria and the NADs, because I feel like I want to go in that direction. Okay. I love how you explain all of it, because it, I actually understand it, how increasing your NADs and your getting your sirtuins to move into action can help fight disease like Alzheimer's or diabetes and other diseases that are actually diseases of aging, which you talk about in your book. Right. So the sirtuins 
have been a remarkable thing to work on, seven of them in our bodies. These are, we call it, they're genes, but actually the genes do something. And the way they do something is they make enzymes. And enzymes are the workhorses of the cells. Without enzymes, we'd be dead in 10 seconds. And these sirtuins are very important because they exist in our bodies to fight against disease. But they become complacent if we don't do anything that's adverse. And so what they, one of the things they do is that they boost mitochondrial activity and the numbers of mitochondria in our cells. Now, almost every cell in the body needs mitochondria because that's where energy comes from, chemical energy. And you know what happens if we don't have mitochondrial activity. Take some cyanide, you'll find out. Right. It's very important. But as we get older, we lose our mitochondria. They're not as active. And even being an athlete, by the time you're 80, you'll, you'll be struggling to keep your mitochondrial activity up. But there are other ways to maximize, I think, their activity. And that's the kind of things we're talking about. Keep your sirtuins super active. Well, there are really two ways that I know of of keeping your sirtuins active in terms of a supplement. One is to take resveratrol, which is an, an accelerator pedal for this enzyme called SIRT1, the first in the, the set. And so think of that as the accelerator, the pedal to the metal. And that's why I've continued to take resveratrol for the last more than a decade, as is my family. We, we understand that that molecule is very safe. The downsides aren't really a problem. Right. And the upsides would be huge. But there's another way to activate all seven of these enzymes, not just one of them. And that's to provide the gas, the fuel for these enzymes. And that's NAD. Now, NAD isn't just used by sirtuins. It's needed for a lot of chemical reactions, and it's in all textbooks. In high school, we all learned about it, but quickly forgot because it was so boring. But we've discovered it's a pretty interesting molecule because it goes up and down during the day, controls our sleep-wake cycle, probably gives you jet lag because it's out of whack, but it also goes down over time. If I measure the NAD levels in a mouse when when it's two years old, which is like a 50-year-old, it'll be half the levels it was when it was young. And we find remarkably when we boost the levels of NAD back up to young levels or beyond, those tissues become young again. For example, we published a paper in the journal Cell, which anyone can go and have a look at. We found that those 20-month-old mice, they live about two and a half years. Oh, they do. So a 20-month-old mice is an elderly, middle-aged mouse. We can make those mice run like it. It's three months old now. They run 50%, sometimes twice as far. And if we combine it with exercise, they run so far, actually, our treadmill stopped working. Wow. Because three kilometers was the maximum the software ran for. So we had to... Adapt that. That's one of the stories in the book, actually, the great treadmill experiment of yes. failure. It's really amazing that you can reverse aging that easily and that quickly. It only took a few weeks and one molecule. So aging isn't that complicated. We can treat this, what I call a disease, far easier than treating cancer and heart disease. It turns out once you understand what causes aging and what regulates it, it's not that hard to solve. Is there a way for people to find out where their levels are? There are listeners that want to kind of explore this concept and start taking charge of their future, of their health and their wellness and their aging? Yeah. One of the things that I'm passionate about is we know more about our cars on the dashboard than we know, than we know about our bodies. The idea of going to the doctor for an annual checkup is ludicrous. Our kids will say, what the heck were you thinking? Why would you wait to get a disease before you could prevent it? Right. And so the, the future is rapidly approaching and actually we're very close to that future. Those of us who are on the cutting edge can already access those modern technologies. And one of them is blood testing. Now it sounds creepy, right? Going and getting your blood tested. Some people Yeah, it's not creepy. to me. <laughs> I'm no, ready. No, no. Many athletes do it. And yeah. it can be analyzed by companies. There's one that I work with and I've I'm a small time investor in full disclosure. It's called Inside Tracker. And so I have 
about 12 years of data on my body. And that's really interesting because it's far more data than your doctor would accumulate. They test about 30 or something parameters. And some of those are things that your doctor wouldn't test for usually. It's all out of pocket, of course. So that's the downside. But the benefit is my doctor can now look at that data and say, wow, look at what's been happening over the last decade. You're going out of range for that, or this is heading towards out of range. And what typically is done if you don't take things into your own hands is that your doctor will look at your blood levels for something and typically they'll just look at standard things cholesterol and blood sugar and that's all and they don't look at anything until you get sick right, right? and that's often too late to right. do something but in, what I found was interesting was it was the opposite with my doctor than what I expected I thought my doctor would say can you stop experimenting on yourself leave it to us the professionals you're not experienced in this stuff instead it was great my doctor said oh wow more data than I normally would be able to get because they're handcuffed by insurance companies they can't just be willy-nilly doing tests without a reason but now we can do that ourselves we can how often do you do the tests for yourself like how often do you recheck them well a few times a year at least Um, you can do it more some athletes are doing it every couple of months or a few months yeah I know like for vo2 max I did the test on my bike for my blood at one point but then I never went back and did it again because I didn't like the answers I got (laughs) (laughs) yeah I didn't want to know that that, you know I wanted to think I was faster than I was yeah (laughs) (laughs) what inside tracker does and companies like it it's good it doesn't just draw a graph for you and say figure it out what it does is say oh look here's what happened to all the other people that were like you here's where you sit in your demographic you know male whatever in Boston it's very different than the average human being right and I think that that when you talk about ranges as we get older and especially women are going to get their hormone levels checked and you know the doctor will say oh you're in the range the range of what like so you can customize your range by doing what you're doing and checking your biomarkers and setting up you can it's called the optimal zone it's different than what the doctor would say is the the range and then what they do is that they've got thousands of well now tens of thousands of data from people and they can say if you eat this or do that you're likely to improve and you know that's a different level that no doctor can store that much data in their head they don't have access to it but now we can use ai to predict if you do this you might improve and at least trying it is better than not trying it at all you can take a step in the right direction i mean if it doesn't work it doesn't work but at least you didn't do nothing that's exactly right and i'm not flying blind with my body either i'm very carefully monitoring myself to see if something goes wrong i want to be the first person to know if my cholesterol shoots up if i start doing something whether it's trying a type of pizza for dinner or you know, for a week or taking a supplement. I'm, I'm a scientist and all this is scientifically based. Now, it's not a clinical trial because you need at least 50 people and placebo, but it is informative nevertheless. Well, I'm in if you need another person. How many do you have? Let's get people <laughs> on the podcast to be part of the clinical trial. What's this thing that you have in your arm that you had mentioned earlier? Well, so it's a glucose monitor yes. and it was developed for diabetics right. to be able to make sure they didn't become hypoglycemic and when they should inject insulin. Um, it's a really nifty device. What it gives you is a, a real-time readout of your blood sugar levels, and you replace it every two weeks. But it's on your phone. That's what's even more cool. Well, my phone reads it through Bluetooth. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's really fun. And more and more people who are not diabetic are using these to find out how their body reacts to food and exercise. And everybody's different. We all have different genes. We have different ages. We have different microbiomes in our guts. And what I'm learning... And it's really interesting, it's fun as well as informative, is that if I eat certain things that I thought were good for me, they're not. They're not just 
I have to throw away the recipe book and start again. So it's like even beyond allergies. It's just learning about what foods work well for your body individually as a human being. Right. And what's very important for longevity is to keep your blood sugar levels down. One of the best predictors, besides measuring your epigenetic clock, which is a very molecular... We're going to have to talk about that after yeah, this. You can do that. Not, not commercially yet. You can't just order it up as far as I know, but... What you can do is measure your blood sugar. Your doctor will do that for you. Yes. Or you can do it yourself yeah. with a blood monitor, like in my arm. Why is that important? Because we know that our blood sugar levels predict your longevity very well. It's the best predictor besides this clock. And so if you see your blood sugar going up and up and up, you want to stop that. You want to lose weight. You want to eat less. You want to exercise. Uh, there are some medicines that you can, if your doctor is open to it, be prescribed before you get type 2 diabetes, age-associated diabetes. And that's all information that I think is really important. We can save millions of lives, extend lives by, I think, up to a decade just by being vigilant of what's going on before we get sick. And so that's like a major biomarker is your blood sugar. Yeah. And so you, the medicine you're talking about is metformin, correct? Right. That's one of the top drugs out there for it. But it does have some interesting side effects, mm -hmm. which I think are hard for a lot of people to digest. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, metformin's on the list of essential medicines for the planet. The World Health Organization right, says Right, it's not it's, just for diabetes. Well, it is right now, but okay. we've seen that studies of over 100,000 people who take metformin, who are diabetic, are also seemingly protected from cancer and heart disease and frailty. The chances of those goes down once you start taking the drug. In fact, you're more resistant to those diseases than somebody who's not even diabetic. Off, right. who's not on the medicine. So that's pretty convincing. We need a what's called a prospective study, one that's designed to test what we want rather than looking backwards. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that this is the best thing that's on the market that's safe. But as you say, not everyone can tolerate it. It can be rough on people, people's stomach. About 20% of people have to stop taking it because it, it gives you a queasy feeling. Yeah. And I get that too. So what I do to mitigate it is to eat it with food, and either milk or a meal, don't have it with a giant steak. It's not right. going to do well for me. Uh, and but you get you do get used to it. And there's one benefit actually is that I'm hungry and I like to eat. I have an obesity gene actually. I was going to ask you, do you have a diabetes gene? So yeah, it's, yeah. In my family, we all have diabetes. Eventually, my father became type two diabetic. His mother and so on. But I'm not going to. I'm trying not to go anywhere near that state. Otherwise, it's very hard to reverse. And so metformin for me is a preventative for type 2 diabetes, but also I think is going to protect me against these other diseases of aging. And now you mentioned your father, right? And you, there's a story about him in the book about how he was sick and how he's now is he's feeling better because he's been taking metformin. You both take it. How is he doing? Well, my, my father is Exhibit A. Now, I'm at Harvard Medical School, so any of my colleagues who are listening, I know that my father is not a clinical trial, and I'm not going to publish this as a clinical trial. It's just a story, but all science begins with stories. And then yeah. we check it with clinical trials. And that's what we're doing. So the story about my father is this. He saw what happened to his mother at 80. And she was she didn't go out of the house. She was depressed, wanted to die. And that's fairly typical of a lot of people. So he took it into his hands to, to try and adjust his longevity. He's a scientist. He could look at my research, among others. And at starting at age uh, late 30s, he started doing s some running, which no doubt has helped in his late later years. Uh, but he also started taking some of the molecules that we 
had shown, at least in mice, were extending their healthy lifespan. Resveratrol he started about a decade ago, a bit more. And then he went on metformin because his blood glucose was borderline high. He was approaching diabetes on that borderline. And then uh, more lately, he started taking a molecule that boosts his NAD levels. Now, again, disclosure, I don't know if the molecules have done anything, but what he's seeing is that he's now not just outpacing, but outliving his colleagues and friends. He's now turned 80. He's living life with a lot more vigor. He's excited about life. He doesn't act or feel 80. He's got no diseases. He's got no aches or pains, and he's not depressed. He's looking forward to another 10 or 20 years. We just got back from a trip to East Africa. We were climbing the Ugandan rainforests, and he was there leading the pack, marching through the jungle with machetes and uh, with his grandkids. I mean, what a better life. There's no better life than that. That's what this is all about. And I, if you asked my kids, they'd say, this is what living longer is all about, being able to climb in the jungle with your grandparents. Right. I mean, I mean, it almost makes me want to cry to think about that. But yeah. that's really what we're talking about. And speaking of grandparents, I mean, that's kind of like the inspiration behind how you got into genetics and became a scientist. Am I right? I mean, your grandmother yeah. kind of inspired you. Like, right. take this me back personal. to that story. because is also such a good story and so inspiring. Well, thank you. Because I lead off in the book about that because it, I can talk about fasting and, and molecules and genes all day. And I, I, I wrote the book in a way that is very page turning and, and accessible. But still, I need to remind myself and everybody why we're doing this. And the reason I'm doing this is my grandmother uh, was full of life. She was unusually uh, active, brave, and had grown up in the aftermath of World War II in Hungary. She was uh, she saved a lot of lives in World War II, but then saw what humans are capable of, just brutality. And she came to Australia to escape the brutality and essentially raised me because she was a young grandmother. She actually had my father when she was 15 in high school. So she was a young woman when I knew her. And she taught me that adults ruin everything. So stay young, stay young at heart. And I'm still 15 in my head or younger, more like a six-year-old sometimes. And that's what science is all about. You have to stay curious about the world. But she also taught me that she wanted me to make humanity the best it could be. And humanity is capable of great good and great evil, but focus on the good. So I've devoted my life to doing good every way I can. And I realized in my late years um, as a teenager that one of the biggest things that we weren't even talking about was old age and why aren't we trying to do something about that and keep people out of nurse out of nursing homes so i've devoted my whole life to that and i saw what happened to my grandmother vera she lived what most people would consider an average life and towards the end it was brutal she was uh, depressed she didn't want to live anymore and in the end she went from somebody who loved every day of life who couldn't wait to get out of bed in the morning and help people to someone who just said this is just the way it goes and so you just kind of wanted to turn that on its head and say, you know what, that's not the way it goes. Well, in every other aspect of humanity, we've changed our lives. There's nothing about our lives that's that's natural, really. Here we are sitting on the ninth floor in an air-conditioned building with supercomputers in our pockets with the sound turned off, hopefully. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, yeah. you know, don't tell me aging is natural. Right. Nothing about our lives. You drove up here in a car. Mm-hmm. How natural is that? I wish I could fly here. Yeah, that's not even natural either. But yeah, it's it's crazy. No, fly, like like fly. Oh, that would... <laughs> yeah, well, we could give ourselves wings. Yeah, no, seriously. 
But here's the thing: yeah. we we don't we refuse to accept what what we're given naturally. We right. adapt, and making fire and making supercomputers and addressing aging is all natural. That's what humans do. Right. We change our environment. We change our bodies. We eat things. We take medicines to make our lives better. And this is no different than that. And so, when you talk about lifespan. You also have talking about like back to your grandmother health span. So she lived to be in her to be 80, but she wasn't happy and she was suffering. And now, you know, we're talking about aging, living longer. And we also have to consider the health span. And while we're living longer, staying healthy during that time frame that we're living and also like how to make that feel more natural. Yeah. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I work on aging, so people jump to the conclusion that I'm trying to make people live forever, live forever, and spend more time in a nursing home. It's the complete opposite. I'm mean, take my dad for example. Who wouldn't want to still be 80 and hanging out with their grandkids and starting a new career? That's what I want for everybody. And whether we live to 90 or 130, that that's not the point. The point is that we can do better in medicine. If we were to stop cancer today, and, and trust me, I'm all for curing cancer. My mother died from lung cancer. It was brutal. But if we're going to extend the average human life by more than just a couple of years, we're going to have to do more than cure cancer because that's all we're going to get from curing cancer or heart disease because all diseases are going up at the same rate. And by the time we're 80, the chances of getting cancer have gone up more than a thousandfold. You know, we think smoking is bad. That only increases your chance of getting cancer by fivefold. Aging is the driver of all these diseases. And, you know, we study and we try to treat these diseases that make us fall off the cliff and die, but we ignore what drives us to that cliff in the first place. Which is aging. That's aging, yeah. You gave some really good examples about how certain species live hundreds of years, like whales, for example, which is one of my favorite stories in the book, and how you live as long as you're meant to live, like as a species. Why don't we live to be 150 or 200 or 300? Like, are we just not designed that way? Like, is there no point of it? Like, what? Mm -hmm. Well, whether you believe we're designed or evolved, um, the answer is that we're only built for as long as we need to live to reproduce and pass on our genes. And our genes get to move on, but we don't. And, you know, being a scientist, I tend towards explaining things through evolution, but whether or not you, you don't care for evolution, it really doesn't matter. Our bodies are not perfect. We know that. Okay, And we didn't need to be perfect to be able to have children and raise them. And by the time we were 45, there was no need to have a longer-lived body. We were done. And the rest is you know, entropy, the loss of information we're done for. And that's why after age 45, it feels like we're falling off a cliff unless we do something about it. Other species have either been designed or I would say evolved to live 200 years because it takes them that long to reproduce. Uh, but they also can afford to. And by afford, what I mean is that they're at the top of the food chain. They're not going to be picked off in two years by a predator. So they don't need to put all their energy into reproducing. Instead, they can afford to build a long-lasting body. Okay? Similar to, let's see, the type of car you buy. You can buy a car that would break after two years and drive it super fast. Or you can build one that drives more slowly but will last for hundreds of years. And we're somewhere in the middle in terms of the animal kingdom. But there are plenty of species that preserve their epigenetic information 
for hundreds of years. There are, there are trees that do it for thousands of years. So it's not impossible. We know that biology can do this. It's just that in our history, we've typically died in our 40s from uh, childbirth, mm -hmm. from infection or war. But now that we've removed most of those things from our lives, what gets us is aging. You have spent nearly 25 years. You're working with mice. You're working with yeast. What are some one of the most incredible things that you discoveries that you've seen along the way? Yeah, it's been a lot. We've reversed vision loss in mice. We've seen them run further. We've seen them protected against radiation. Uh, but the one that was most surprising, because it went against everything that's in textbooks that you'll read about, we took old female mice that had lost their ability to produce healthy eggs. And if you look at it, an old egg, the chromosomes are ripped apart. This is partly why we have propensity for Down syndrome kids. Chromosomes get ripped. We found that if we gave them a boost of NAD uh, just by putting a molecule in their drinking water, 16-month-old mice uh, started having children again, ba uh, babies, which blew us away because that there's nothing in biology that says that that should happen. Right. But we've, we've traced it to a molecular mechanism. We aren't just throwing molecules at mice. We actually we have a very good understanding of how it works. And it, what it does is it stabilizes the chromosomes in the female's eggs. And we think that that's why these old eggs now become healthy again. So does that have to do with, does the NAD have the ability to turn around the hormones and what the thyroid's doing and what yeah. the organs are doing? Yeah, we, we think so. Um, most of what we've looked at is the ovary. And the old idea that the ovary runs out of eggs that might have to be overturned because we can even ablate all the eggs in a mouse with chemotherapy and get back fertility somehow. How do you reset your genetic clock? Uh, well, we can measure your clock. If I took your blood, I could measure your biological age. We now know the epigenome has markers. We can read it. It's very easy. It takes a day, a couple of hundred dollars. Now, that clock, what we've discovered is that if you rewind the clock, using some enzymes in the cell. They're called TET enzymes. There's a lot about it uh, written in the book. For lack of time, I can't go into it too much. But here's the thing. If we rewind the clock, it doesn't just make the clock look different. It turns time backwards. What I mean by that, if we re reprogram the back of the eye, the retina, with our gene therapy, and we put a few genes in there that we turn on that are normally only found early in life and in embryos, we find that we reverse the aging of the eye and old mice get their vision back. So, so that was the Yamanuka. Yamanuka factors. Yamanuka factors. Yeah, it's it's out. It's online. It's it's still under peer review. So bear that in mind. But the the paper has set the scientific world on fire because it's doing something that we didn't think was possible. It's accessing a backup drive, hard drive, backup copy of a youthful epigenome that we can somehow reset to be young again. In addition to reversing blindness in mice, have you done any research on being able to reduce hearing loss? The NAD story, the sirtuins, they actually protect against hearing loss in mice. So that I think we, we have a good shot at this. We haven't reprogrammed the ear to be young again, but we think there's a chance it'll work because the nerves that are in the eye that we see become young and can even regrow back if they're damaged. Those nerves are very similar to what we find in the ear. So that's something that we're looking at. What is your goal with everything that you're doing? Are you working on a drug, on any medicine, on something similar to some of the doctors that you reference in the book and history? You had mentioned Salk in the book. Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing all I can with the time I'm given, uh, and I'm still learning to be a better father. But besides that, what I'm trying to do with the rest of my time um, are, is a lot of things. 
I wear many, many hats. Uh, my main hat is, as a professor here, I have a team of 40 people, uh, 30 to 40 depending on the year, working on understanding why we age and what we can do about it. And we do a lot of very fundamental research here. We've figured out, we think, why we age. We think we figured out how to reverse it. Uh, we'll talk about that, I, I think. But also what I do outside of this job, and I'm allowed to devote a little bit of my extracurricular time to other things. Yeah. So what do I choose to spend it on? Uh, a lot of it's education. I really do like, and I think it, it's very important that people hear about the research and know that this isn't just fake. And typically newspapers exaggerate like crazy. Or mm -hmm. David says we're all going to live to 150. That's not what right. I've ever said. Uh, so education is there. But I also want to leave a legacy of trainees. So there's dozens of professors around the world that I've trained. But I also make I'm trying to make medicines and help other scientists make medicines. And so there's what's called the valley of innovation death. Mm -hmm. So scientists often make discoveries and then assume that drugs will be made. That doesn't happen. You need investment. You need champions who will take the science to the clinic. And that's what I do. So I work with about 15 companies. I've co-founded at least that many that I'm hoping will take us into the future that I talk about in the book. Not just medicines for aging. I also work on treating and detecting infections. Right now, the way we detect infections is 100 years old. We try to grow things on petri dishes. Right. It's, it's barbaric. So we're developing DNA tests that will find any disease in your bloodstream or in your body uh, within, hopefully, within hours. Uh, and that one's out there. That's a successful company. Uh, and I, I help others. So Inside Tracker, I, I mentioned, is a blood yeah. testing company. Do they um, also do, they do blood testing? Do they just Inside Tracker do genetic testing as well? Uh, they work with another genetic testing company. Okay. So you can plug in your genes and it'll, it'll help their algorithm. Uh, I work on treating wounds, um, in, wounds from diabetics that don't heal. We, we have a product that's going into clinical trials. So I'm really, really busy and I wear many hats. Um, and the book, A Labor of Love, and I squeezed that in uh, partly as I was driving home, partly on weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and my co-author, Matt LaPlante, deserves a lot of credit for taking dozens of whiteboard stories and ideas and science and putting it into a, a beautifully written story that I think the people who've read it are really happy that they've picked it up. Yeah, I mean, the book is amazing. It is a page turner. And I love that you have a glossary in the back, a cast of characters and lots of great notes. You talk a lot about science and about the process of aging and how we can reverse aging. And then you also are talking about where these concepts and the history of medicine and science began and like why we are where we are today, which I think is super interesting. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, it's a journey. Don't look for just a recipe book. It's not just a list. It's, yeah. it's a, a look at why we're human and why we don't live longer than we do and what the future looks like if we're successful and if we're not successful at this endeavor. And I think by the end of it, um, readers have told me, and I, it's same for me, once I've gotten through it, I feel differently about my family, I feel differently about my life, and I feel like my my lifespan is in my hands. 80% of our lifespan is, is in our hands, only 20% is genetic. That's yeah. such a positive message. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And so, all right, well, this has been so awesome. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, Moni. It's been great. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode 
links in the show notes. And of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, moneyonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.